Have you ever considered the amount of faith needed to go to the grocery store? Much of what you purchase in the supermarket is bought under one simple assumption. The assumption is this, that what's on the outside accurately reveals what's on the inside. Take, for example, when was the last time you bought banana peels? I know that you bought these in faith, believing that what's inside these peels are actual bananas because you go to the grocery store with an assumption that what's on the outside accurately reveals what's on the inside or when was the last time you bought a plastic bag that's only half full (laughs) you bought this bag in faith believing that if you rip into it you're going to find some of your favorite potato chips because you go to the grocery store on an assumption that what's on the outside accurately reveals what's on the inside Or when you're standing in the checkout line and you grab one of these, when was the last time you bought a candy wrapper? Now you buy this wrapper in full faith, believing that when you open it, you're going to find some of your favorite chocolate because you go to the grocery store with an assumption that what's on the outside accurately reveals what's on the inside. I've gone to the grocery store numerous times in my lifetime And I've never seen anybody verify their faith. I've never stood in the produce section and found customers peeling away the banana peels just to verify that it's an actual banana and not a red hot chili pepper inside. I've never seen anybody test their faith. When it comes to buying a bag of chips, I've never seen anyone in the aisle rip open that bag just to verify that what's inside are some of their favorite chips and not dehydrated Brussels sprouts. I've never found anybody in the checkout line who grabs a candy wrapper, opens it up just to make sure that what's inside are M&Ms and not frozen peas. I've never known anybody to verify the faith of going to the grocery store. Do you know why? Because we believe that the peeling doesn't lie. We believe that the outer wrapping is never misleading. This morning, this lesson is not on how to shop at the grocery store. This is a lesson about life. It's a lesson about living from the inside out. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 to 22 as we continue in our sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 1, we'll read through verse 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zebedee, in the desert. 
He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough places smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what shall we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John just might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not unworthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John was a tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. John begins our passage by giving us an orderly account of the political and religious landscape of first century Israel. Politics have always been confusing, regardless of what century you live in. It's no different in the first century. Religion can become convoluted when far too many men have their own personal agendas involved in it. And when you mix politics and religion, that can be a recipe for disaster. Luke, in a very succinct way, describes the political and the religious scene of Palestine. He begins by building concentric circles, starting with the national level, working its way down to the local level. He says, when he mentions the first of seven names, that Tiberius Caesar was reigning. Tiberius was the stepson of Caesar Augustus. 
He also mentions Pontius Pilate. This is the same Pontius Pilate that Jesus will stand before at the very end of his life. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. And then he lists out for us three regional rulers. There's Herod and there's Philip and Lysanias. Now, the Herod is not Herod the Great. This is the Herod not so great. He, he is the son of Herod the Great. Historians call him Herod Antipas. Herod had a couple of brothers. Uh, Herod the Great had to divide his kingdom because no brother could get along with the other brother. So you had Philip and you had Licinius. And then uh, Luke mentions two religious leaders. He says they're were two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you know that's odd because the truth of the matter is there's only one high priest every year, so why would Luke mention two? The reason is because he's describing the, just the convoluted chaos of man-made religion. It's true that Annas was the high priest around 6 to 15 A.D., he ruled for approximately 10 years as one of the highest leaders in Judaism. But then he appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas officially was the high priest until about 36 AD. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was handed over to be executed and crucified. What Luke is telling us is that yes, Caiaphas is the high priest, but while he is in the place of authority, his daddy-in-law is standing behind him, telling him everything he has to do. So what Luke is describing is a convoluted mess. It's politics gone bad. It's man-made religion that's gone astray. It is a mess of everything that's going on. And in the midst of all of this political and religious mess, Luke says, don't miss the fact that the word of God cut through the chaos. The word of God raised up the man named John, the son of Zechariah, who was in the desert. Oh, my friends, I want you to know what Luke wants you to know, that the word of God and the God of the word cannot be thwarted. God cannot be stopped. God cannot be silenced by society. His word is eternal and it's true. It cuts through the chaos of politics and man-made religion. It is the one thing that lasts for all time and all of eternity. And when everything was going haywire, the word of God was proclaiming in the wilderness. My friends, can I just give you just a side note, a little caveat? I realize that in our American history, we are in a political cycle of 2016. We've got a big decision to make in November. Who's going to be the next president of these United States of America? And I do not diminish that in any way. I want you to know that that's an important election. Uh, that, that's an important thing that we as Christian citizens, we need to be actively engaged in. But can I just let you in on this? That regardless of whether your person wins or loses come the first Tuesday of November, regardless, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is still on his throne. His agenda is still being carried out. His word cannot be stopped. And so regardless, the word of God will go forth because God's word, which is eternal and true, infallible and honest, the word of God will cut through all the chaos of the culture. So do not lose heart when things may not be going the way you want them to go. 
Do not lose heart because God is in control. Luke says that God was in control of the first century. He, his word raised up a prophet. The man's name is John. Now we've bumped into John before in our study of the gospel of Luke. John was the bouncing baby boy of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth represented everything good about Judaism. They had a great life. They had everything that life could offer, except one thing seemed to elude them. Elizabeth was barren. Zechariah was a priest, and on one of his assignments, as he ministered in the temple there in the sacred city of Jerusalem, Zechariah saw a visitor from heaven. It was the angel Gabriel who said, the Lord has heard your prayers. Your wife, even though she's old enough to draw social security, your wife is going to conceive and she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name John. He is going to be great. He's going to be a delight. He's going to be a joy. He's going to go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And wouldn't you know it, that the word of God came true? Elizabeth conceived. She gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. They gave him the name John. And John was raised up as one who was like the prophet Elijah. Now, in our passage, uh, John is about 30 years of age. He's there in the desert. He's preaching the word of God. And he is a quirky guy. He's weird. For starters, he eats bugs. His diet was locust and wild honey. He never would have graced the cover of Palestine's GQ magazine. He wore camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He must have been pretty charismatic, though. He had a message that people wanted to hear. Apparently, people both near and far gathered on the banks of the Jordan River to hear the message of John and then to be baptized by him. His message was very consistent. It seems as if he had one sermon. He had one bullet in his gun that's all that he preached, just one simple sermon. And the sermon could be summarized in a statement. Let me let you in on a secret. Every good sermon ought to be summarized in a statement. And Luke summarizes all the preaching of John with this statement, repent for the forgiveness of sin. That's what he always preached. He preached about repentance. The word repent means the changing of your mind. It's not just the changing of your attitude, but it's the changing of your actions. It literally means to spin around 180 degrees. You're going in one direction. You willfully decide to repent. You turn and walk in the opposite direction. And John said that this repentance is what paves the way unto holiness. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John understood his mission. He knew that he was a prophet like Elijah. He looked like Elijah. He talked like Elijah. He walked like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He proclaimed the message of Elijah Luke quotes for us the infamous statements from the prophet Isaiah. There is a voice in the desert calling out, prepare the way for the Lord. John knew his ministry was one of preparation, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And John understood what Isaiah knew, that whenever royalty came, that roads were made, that old roads were repaired. And John says, this is my job. I am paving the road. I am making the way for the highway of holiness for you to venture from earth to heaven. And in order for you to do that, you must repent for your sins. So he constantly preached a message of repentance. 
Everybody came to the banks of the Jordan. There were farmers and teachers and businessmen and merchants. There were religious people and non-religious people. It is Matthew who tells us that on one day, some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees got together and they went out to hear what John had to say. They, they went not out of conviction, but merely out of curiosity. Now, Luke, when he tells us what happens next, he just says that, that John looked to the entire crowd. Matthew says he looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Regardless, John is there in front of the crowd and he looks at them and he says with a snarl on his face, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee the coming wrath? In other words, why are you here? Can I tell you that if John were to live today, Zondervan Press would not ask him to write a church growth book on how to make visitors feel comfortable in the American church. John would not be the author of that book. If John was on staff of this church, First Baptist Pelham, I don't think I would get him to do the welcome at the beginning of the service. Can you imagine how it would go? He would pace the stage and look at you and say, why are you here? Who told you to come? Hey, listen, we're going to sing some songs and, and you're going to hear some preaching. And when it's over, you better come down on your keister and you better get down here and repent of your sins. Glad you're here. Welcome. Then he had gone and sat down. I mean, if John the Baptist were part of this church staff, I would get him to do a lot of things, but doing the welcome at the very beginning of the service just might not be one of his responsibilities. You bunch of snakes, he said. You brood of vipers. Who told you to come? Then he says to them, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? He's telling people to produce fruit. Now, by and large, trees, plants produce fruit, not, not people. I mean, I look around at you, and, and you don't have any grapes hanging out of your nostril hairs. I mean, you don't have any oranges or apples hanging off your earlobes. I mean, how are you producing fruit? What does he mean when he says, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance? I mean, I think what he's saying is, make sure that the peeling doesn't lie. Make sure that the, that the wrapper of your life is not misleading. What's on the outside of you ought to actually reveal what's on the inside. The proof is in the pudding. So produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. You say that you repented before the Lord. You say that you're a, f- a follower of Christ. You say you're a God-fearer. will produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. In other words, be consistent in your walk. Don't be hypocritical as you masquerade in front of a watching world one way and then you live another way other days of the week. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now this statement is one that Jesus used. Maybe John first heard it from Jesus. 
It's recorded in the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's also recorded in Luke's version, somewhere around Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, by their fruit you'll recognize them. A good tree cannot consistently bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot consistently bear good fruit. For the good person will do good things out of the good stored up in their heart, and the evil person will do evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Because Jesus knows that the peeling won't lie. Jesus knows that the wrapper cannot be misleading. So produce fruit in keeping with repentance. James, the brother of our Lord, elsewhere in the New Testament, he says the very same thing with different words. He says, you show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is a message that caught on. It's Luke who does a helpful thing for us. He records for us the after-sermon conversations. Every preacher has them. After the sermon is over, then people come up and they begin to uh, have a conversation with the preacher. And Luke records some of those after-sermon conversations. Some of the crowd comes up and they say, what shall we do? I mean, how do we show that we're legit? How do we show that we're authentic in our faith? How do we show that we're living from the inside out? How do we tell the watching world that our appealing is not a lie? And John says to them, well, if you have two jackets, two shirts, and somebody else needs one, give it to him. In other words, I think what he's saying is that generosity is a fruit of repentance, Generosity is not something that you and I can just say that we have. We can't just declare it. We've got to display it. Generosity is not just an attitude. It's an action. So John the Baptist says, if, if someone is in need and you have a way to meet that need, if, if you really have repented of your sin and God has been generous unto you, then you must be generous unto others. You got two shirts. Somebody needs one. You give it to him. He said, Okay. We can pick that up. We're picking up what you're putting down. We understand where you're going with this. Still some tax collectors came. What do we do? And John said to the tax collectors, don't take more money than is required. In other words, don't steal from your countrymen. He's saying that a life of integrity is fruit in keeping with repentance. That you need to have a, be an individual of, of integrity. And you'll remember that it's Luke who tells us that masterful story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, that wee little man, that wee little man was he, and he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he sees Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus by name. He scurries down that little tree, and Jesus has a conversation with Zacchaeus. On the way home, the gospel is presented. Salvation takes place, and Zacchaeus stands up. And what does he say? Half my possessions I give to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. It's not if, as if the jury's still out. The word if is since. Since I've cheated people, I'll repay them four times the amount. 
The gospel had convicted Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was convicted by the good news of the gospel. He understood he was a man with no integrity. And being a person who follows after Christ means that you are an individual of great integrity in dealing with others. Then a third group of people come up. The third group are the soldiers. These are the big macho guys. These are the rough and tumble guys. These are the soldiers that walk up. I mean, they're, they're the jocks of their society. They're, they're respected in their culture. They come up convicted of sin. They say to John, what do we do? What, what do we do? And John says to them, don't extort. Don't steal. Be honest. Don't lie. Be content with your pay. In other words, be honest. So John, just in a, in a matter of a few minutes, he says, some of this uh, fruit that we produce includes generosity and integrity and honesty. But that's not all of it. It's not like he was given a smorgasbord of what the fruit is. I mean, there are other things that could be demonstrated fruit of repentance in your life. I mean, think with me. Once again, it's James, the brother of our Lord who says in his New Testament book that our speech ought to be consistent. He says we ought not come into church, lift up holy hands and say hallelujah, praise the Lord, bless his holy name, and use these lips to offer up worship unto the Lord and then turn right around and leave the church and curse our spouse or yell at our children with vile language. James says, this, this should not be. I mean, in one moment, you offer up words of praise. In another moment, you offer up words of cursing. How can this be? And you call yourself a repentant follower of Christ. Or even further, you know, we say to ourselves and say one to another, we are passionate about purity. Oh, we are passionate people about purity. We put up parameters and we put up blockades and our eyes are focused upon the Lord. And that's what we say here. But then we leave and some view pornography and others are hooking up and shacking up. And then we say, how can this be? I mean, how is it that we can say we act one way and then we actually act in a way that's totally contrary? John would say, don't let the peeling lie. Live from the inside out. And, and then I guess another fruit would be the fruit of evangelism. I mean, we are to be tenacious about telling the story of the gospel. And we say in the church, oh, we love to tell the story of Jesus. My friends, can I just be honest? When was the last time you told the story of Jesus? Well, I invited somebody to church. Praise the Lord. I'm glad that you did. But when was the last time you had a conversation about the claims of Christ upon somebody else's life? Maybe it's a family member or a friend. Well, pastor, I, I told them I'd pray for them. I told them if they needed anything, if they ever wanted to talk, they could come and talk to me. Well, that's good. That's great. But when was the last time that you sat down and said, can I introduce you to the greatest thing in my life? His name is Jesus. And he saved me from all of my mess ups. 
And he died on the cross for my sins. He was placed into a grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. That's not just a myth. That's, that's not just a fable. That's a fact. And, and what God has done to me, the transformation that's happened to me, oh, my friend, it can happen to you too. I've told you before about my friend from Uniontown. Last fall, several of us traveled to Uniontown on the church bus, and we were going down there to, to uh, give out some free food, and that was just kind of the hook to uh, enter into a conversation with people about the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the system kind of went like this. There was a truckload of food, and that we were locked up with someone from Uniontown. That was our partner for the day. And we would go up, and we would help the individual, the couple, the family, as they made their way through the line. And then from the back of the truck to their car, we were to present the gospel. In a very simple way. The idea was that we were supposed to do it, then that partner was supposed to do it, then we were supposed to do it, kind of flip-flop back and forth. But it came abundantly clear to me that my partner uh, didn't really want to share the gospel. And so after about five times, I looked at him and I said, hey man, it's your turn. I mean, it's your turn next. He said, I don't think I can do that. I said, yeah, I know you can do it. I said, you've you've heard what I've said. I said, "Just, just share what's on your heart. You know, I mean, we'll take the box, we'll take it to their truck. You just share with them what the Lord has done. You share what, who God is. You can do that, can't you? Yeah, I can do it. I tell you, this man went John the Baptist on him. I promise you not, he got this close to them. And he looked like, do you know God loves you? And as they were walking, he was walking. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He died on the He was in the grave and he raised on the third day. Do you know Jesus loves you? And all the while I'm sitting there going, oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> we put the box in the car and the person adamantly says, I know Jesus. Yes, I know Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. I know Jesus. We fill out the paperwork and I'm still thinking, oh, my Lord, what just happened? We get done, I look at the guy, and he looks at me with the most sincere face. And he said, you know what? That makes you feel good inside, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it does. And I told him, I said, you know what? The more you do that, the more comfortable you'll become. It'll just kind of become second nature in your conversation. You'll be able to start gospel conversations with people. Um, I said, man, I, I'm proud of you. This may be the first time, but it's not the last time that you'll tell the story. My friends, when was the last time that you shared the gospel? Because if you've received it, you've received it to share it. John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't let your peeling lie. Don't let it tell a mistruth. Don't let the wrapping of your life be misleading. If you say you are a follower of Christ, receiver of forgiveness of sin, then it better be borne out in your attitudes, in your actions. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. People said, John's good. He, may be, he, he just might be the Christ. Are you the Messiah? And John quickly said, oh, no, no, I, I am not the Messiah. One who comes after me, who's far greater than me. I, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's ready to gather at the threshing floor. In other words, John says, I have a ministry of preparation. He will have a ministry of purification. What I promise he will do, he will actually do. He is the Christ. I'm not worthy to walk behind him as a servant and candle, carry his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. He is so much greater. He is so higher than I am. He is so much more majestic than I could ever be. I'm just trying to point people to him. He is royalty. He is the Christ. John was adamant about this. He was unashamed about the gospel. In fact, Luke tells us that it's because of John speaking against Herod, who had sexual relationships with Herodias. Herodias was married to Herod's brother, Philip. Can you imagine the family gatherings? Whew. I mean, Herod was there, and Philip was there, and Herod was flirting with Philip's wife, Herodias, and, and all sorts of bad things were happening. That's not the worst thing that Herod did. That's just one of the vile things that he did. And Herod didn't know what to do with John. He wanted to silence him, so he just threw him into prison. With the very next words, Luke tells us that Jesus burst onto the scene. Luke chapter 3 is an intersection between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of John is on the descend. The ministry of Jesus is ascending upward, and it crisscrosses right here in Luke chapter 3. I've already told you the first two chapters of Luke. Luke does a masterful job of storytelling. He interweaves the birth announcement of John with the birth announcement of Jesus, the birth actual arrival of John with the birth actual arrival of Jesus. He tells a couple of stories about Jesus' young life, and now here we are some 18 years later after Jesus was 12 years old in the temple. 18 years later, Jesus, poof, burst onto the scene. He comes to the banks of the Jordan River to be baptized, not because he's a sinner, but so he can identify with sinners. So he says to his cousin, I, I need to be baptized. You and I cannot overestimate and overemphasize the baptism of Jesus. It's at the baptism of Jesus that we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity. The affirmation is both verbal and visual. It's visual in the sense that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. It's verbal in the sense that God the Father speaks to God the Son, saying, you are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Those words must have been etched into the very heart of the Christ. Th th those are unforgettable words. Those are words of identification. Those are words of ministry. Those are words that will propel Jesus for the next three years and beyond. It is these words at the beginning when God the Father says to God the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. These are the words that carry Jesus into temptation and beyond. These are the words that carry Jesus when the Herodians want to execute him prematurely. These are the words that Jesus remembers when it's Judas who betrays him with the kiss. These are the words that Jesus must remember on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And in the back of his mind, he must have remembered these infamous words, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And Jesus, remembering these words, went to the cross, died our death, and was raised to give us life. 
What Luke wants us to know is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything John preached. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything John preached. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the royalty who must walk on highways of holiness. Jesus is the purifier of sin. Jesus is the farmer with a winnowing fork in his hand. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who was the anointed one who was to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that John preached. Luke wants us to know the identity of Jesus. Remember, in the opening lines of chapter one, he says, I write this orderly account to you so that you may have blessed assurance of the things you've been taught. He wants you to know the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who transforms us from the inside out. That's who Jesus is. You look at Luke chapter 3, and it jumps off the page. Jesus is the Son of God who came to transform us from the inside out so that our peeling will not lie, so that we can walk consistently before a watching world, so that we can not only have relationship but maintain relationship with the Lord. Jesus came to transform us from the inside out because whatever is on the inside, it will come out. Whatever's on the inside, it will come out. So if you and I are stuffed with Jesus, Jesus will come out. If you and I are stuffed with the world, then the world will come out. This morning, don't forget the message of John. And before you say, but wait a minute, pastor, I live on this side of the cross. All my sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I know that. I believe that. That's good theology. But still, don't forget the message of John. For John's message speaks to fellow snakes. John's message speaks today, maybe to a brood of vipers. And John's message says to us, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, immediately confess it and produce the fruit that is consistent with the repentance that you proclaim. Some of us this morning just might need to crawl down on our bellies right here at the altar of God and say, Lord, forgive me for an inconsistent walk or an inconsistent talk. Forgive me for the hypocrisy of my life. Forgive me for the negligence that I've demonstrated in my walk with you. Oh, Lord, I know I have a relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want to be close to you. I I want our fellowship to be so sweet, so close. So, Lord, where there is sin, remove it. Where there is disobedience, please forgive it. And as you walk out of the sanctuary, produce fruit in keeping with repentance so that what's on the outside actually accurately reveals what's on the inside. Because above all, don't let your peeling lie. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Have your way. Help us to obey. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.